0: with these uh, some of these groups who are putting pressure on our financial institutions uh, you know I know they're, they're virtue signaling and they feel you know we're good these companies are bad so we're gonna be up on them uh, but they're actually w- working against their goal you know if they're successful we're actually gonna increase emissions not decrease emissions. so it's, it's become such a polarized argument us versus them we've forgotten what the issue is the issue is to reduce emissions So let's focus on reducing emissions, not on uh, vilifying people and misinforming and uh, virtue signaling.
1: Welcome to the Blue Skies political podcast. I'm MP, Aaron O'Toole. And today we're gonna talk not just about blue skies, but about grey clouds on the horizon for our economy as we're wrapping up 2022. Just this week, the IMF warned that 2023 will likely be a year of global recession. We're already seeing orders being slowed. We're seeing concern about consumer demand. We're seeing massive increases to interest rates, a cooling of the housing market and construction. We continue to see labor shortages in Canada causing productivity issues. We've accumulated hundreds of billions of dollars of debt in recent years due to the COVID 19 pandemic, but also due to large deficits before COVID 19. Interest rates coming up, we're going to be paying more on that debt, and a lot of it was short term debt that will be coming due. Times are a bit dire. But Canada is resourceful. We have resources. We have an incredible opportunity right in front of us. Out of 195 countries in this world, we are a leader in many areas. One area in particular, we're the fifth largest producer or player in an area that will see unprecedented growth between now and 2050, 28% increase in growth. Where we're already a leader, it will help us provide jobs, money for government coffers, provincially and federally, at a time we could desperately need it. But that opportunity is in natural gas. Is Ottawa ready to seize the day? Is Ottawa ready to make Canada a global leader for energy production? to be an environmentally and socially conscious producer of energy at a time the world needs it more than ever. That's what the Blue Skies is going to talk about today. The opportunity that is in front of us if we're willing to seize it, if we have the courage to build. Today's guest, Chris Sublicki, has spent almost four decades in the energy sector in Canada. He's from Ontario, graduated with an engineering degree from Queens, and then got his MBA at the University of Calgary. He worked in operations with Chevron, Placer Dome, and then on the financial side with Scotia and Scotia-Watras. He became a CEO at Opti Canada and Modern Resources. Charitably minded, he's worked with youth, was on the board of Alpine Canada. He's a ski buff. And in 2019, he gave an exceptional TED Talk in Grand Prairie, Alberta, Talking about Canadian energy leadership and the opportunity that is there if we seize it. Welcome to the Blue Skies Political Podcast, Chris Sublicki.
0: Thank you, Erin. Good to see you. And thank you for having me.
1: It's great to have you back, Chris. And I, I I wanted to start off with some of those numbers. And we're going to refer to your TED talk a few times in this, and we can update maybe some of the numbers from 2019, but the opportunities are still there. Canada being a global leader in oil and gas production, in nuclear, in uh, renewables, huge opportunity with us being in the top six of producers in oil and gas, and really one of the only democracies alongside the United States. Um, there's huge opportunity, but let's talk about for a moment that demand I referred to, that over the coming decades, there'll be almost 30% increase in demand for natural gas. Talk about how there's scarcity in terms of energy and there's abundance. We have great abundance here in Canada, but there's billions of people in developing countries that, that have energy scarcity. We're seeing energy scarcity in Europe now with the war in Ukraine. Talk a bit about that energy scarcity versus abundance and why Canada has a role to play.
0: Well, anybody who's uh, traveled internationally has uh, seen uh, how other people who lack energy uh, live and what their quality of life is like. And uh, just, you know, keeping the numbers round, there's uh, just shy of 8 billion people on Earth and about a billion and a half of those people from an energy standpoint live as we do. So we have energy abundance. We don't really think about it. We never walk into a room and flick the light switch on and go, phew, the light came on. You know, we don't even think about it. We just take it for granted that it's always there. It's reliable but there's six and a half uh, billion people on this planet who don't live with that kind of energy abundance. And of course it uh, is in various degrees. So the average person in the Western world, a billion and a half of us, we consume about 34 barrels of energy a year, barrels of oil of energy a year. Now that's all forms of energy, nuclear, solar, wind uh, expressed in barrels of oil. There's almost a billion people on this earth, a billion who use less than one barrel a year. And most of that comes from wood, coal and cow dung. And you know, it, if you look at the six and a half billion people or you know it's it's numbers that are difficult to comprehend six and a half billion who don't get to live as we do i ask people this all the time do you think that they don't want to live a standard of living something closer to us it, does anybody think they don't deserve to live a standard of living something closer to us you know when you put it in those terms it, it changes people's views we have to get this world and energy every kind of energy responsible energy but every kind of energy when somebody is uh burning cow dung to heat their dinner It's pretty difficult to debate uh, what kind of uh, source they should be using. It's pretty hard to criticize them. We need to get this world energy, every kind of energy, and that includes, you know, renewables, uh, geothermal, nuclear, oil and gas. There's no uh, one-size-fits-all answer. There's no silver bullet solution here, but we need to get this world energy. Now, let's start looking forward, too. When we look at energy, you know, the IEA last year came out with their Road to Net Zero report, so I read through it. And uh, in that report, they say to get to, the, to uh, net zero by 2050, energy consumption has now peaked and it's going to start to decline because we're going to get more efficient. I'm all for efficiency. It's the lowest hanging fruit we have. But there's no way that energy demand it, has peaked and it's going to decline. You know, Between now and 2050, there's going to be another one and a half, two billion people on this earth who have to be fed, clothed, housed, educated. All those things take energy. There's six and a half billion people on Earth today, even if not another person was born, there's six and a half billion people today who are trying to get access to more reliable, inexpensive energy to raise their standard of living. And then even you and I, who already have such abundant energy, and I refer to our energy situation in Canada a bit critically, I call it energy arrogance. We we have all the energy we can ever dream of, uh, and we tell others what to do. You know, it's not that simple. But even us who have all the energy, we keep thinking of new ways to use energy. Think Bitcoin. You know how much did we need that? You know, but it uses massive amounts of energy. So even us who live in energy abundance keep thinking of no, new ways to use energy. So is energy demand on the planet going to decline towards twenty fifty? There is not a chance in the world. Not a chance.
1: Yeah, and let's delve into that because even if you look at the IEA's projections, which I quoted from in terms of natural gas demand, I quoted from the stated policies uh, yeah. projection. Right? Yeah. They they break it down in three ways. Yeah. There's stated policies of there's where we are now, stated policies of governments of the world between now and 2050, announced pledges which of course is lower, and then sustainable development which is even lower. We can only go off of the stated policies and the rising demand of consumers. That issue that person developed the world using one barrel of oil equivalent per year, relying on uh, insufficient electricity generated through through coal, through wood burning, or, or even done biomass they deserve a higher quality of life. So we can't lecture them to say you must be frozen in time, the emissions that aren't even giving you a quality of life. So this is really a north versus south, uh, developed versus developing world paradigm where we should be actually helping them get more energy security with with our hydrocarbons, our our nuclear, as we work collectively to get emissions down over time without sacrificing uh, people's quality of life.
0: Well, absolutely. And uh, I, you know, one thing I share with, you know, whether it's the Green Party or environmental groups is the desire to reduce emissions. And uh, I you know I think it's very important. I think it's job one. Uh, Having said that, to shut down, uh, you know, LNG as an example, nuclear uh, carbon capture, because we don't like those. Uh, is actually counterproductive. It actually increases emissions because people have no choice and they're going to burn dirtier sources of fuel, which includes uh, dung. Of course, it's hard. It's hard to believe in 2022 uh, on this planet, people are burning dung. And when you're in Canada, that seems incomprehensible, but uh, that's the reality. Uh, It also includes coal and it includes wood. You know, I don't know why we talk about burning wood as being uh, environmentally acceptable. Uh, It's an extremely dirty source of fuel. And also, it doesn't contain very much energy uh, compared to coal, let's say, depending on what kind of wood, but it's about half to a third the energy. You know, a kilogram of wood is about half to a third to a kilogram of coal. So you have to burn a lot more of it. And and of course, burning wood uh, releases uh, carbon dioxide, and it's also very dirty. It releases particulates. Uh, Why we even talk about burning wood, you know, biofuel, biomass, as they call it, they're, you know, burning wood pellets in Europe to generate electricity in northeast U.S. It's insane. (laughs) It's insane. So why don't we, uh, you know, start having a bit more of a calm, rational discussion, start developing uh, some of these, uh, you know, whether it's nuclear, LNG, to the highest standards in the world with indigenous Not just consultation, but participation, as uh, Pemina is doing now with the uh, 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 Haisla uh, in uh, Kitimat. And and there's examples across the country, not just Mm -hmm. in LNG. You know, there's Indigenous parts of Clearwater Foods in the East Coast. Uh, uh, The Wate Power Project in Northwest Ontario, 24 First Nations involved. You know, there's lots of... it's it's, uh, The discussion with Indigenous Canadians has changed from uh, consultation to participation very quickly. Mm -hmm. And, And that's a real positive... Uh, aspect and in, in terms of the energy industry, there's no other industry in the country that employs uh, and provides employment by hiring the companies that they have. Uh, indigenous it employs more Indigenous Canadians than the Canadian energy industry. We employ more Indigenous Canadians than the federal government. Yeah, uh, you know we are the number one employer and provider of opportunity. And and there are partners. who are not just providing. They're providing us valuable services. You know that this is a great partnership and, and a way out of uh, poverty.
1: I agree, and we'll 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 talk more about Canada's opportunity as a as an ESGI leader, environmental, social governance, and Indigenous partnership. But let's before we close off this scarcity and the global supply issue, look at scarcity from the standpoint of the war in Ukraine. You have uh, Europe now in turmoil as winter comes, and literally realizing they'd put all put all their eggs in the basket of of gas from from Russia, and coal plants being started back up in Germany because they tried to phase out nuclear. So very poor public policy planning uh, by Chancellor Merkel and the governments that kind of backed them into this corner. But in Ontario, we like to to pat ourselves on the back a little bit for Ontario eliminating 8.8 gigawatts of coal-fired electricity generation. But over the same time frame, Chris, and I've talked about this in terms of my support for nuclear and particularly Darlington in my writing in that same time period we took 8.8 gigawatts off off the grid globally in the same time frame 2024 gigawatts were were stood up in global coal use countries that, that uh, it went up to 78 users of coal for electricity generation from 66 in 2013 countries started using coal over that period for the first time whereas only one belgium eliminated it and germany has been burning brown coal which uh, has has more missions. Um, so this scarcity comes into play even for developed countries who have less options for their energy because of poor decisions by politicians. Canada's ability to to help fill that gap could not just help the developed world but could help our friends in Europe.
0: well, uh, absolutely, i uh, I find the discussion is uh, oversimplified. You know, people say we have to stop burning natural gas, stop burning coal for electricity. We have to use renewables. Uh, And, uh, you know, to be clear, I am a huge, huge fan of renewables, whether it's solar, whether it's wind, whether it's geothermal, whether it's tidal, Uh, I'm I'm a huge fan. And and of course, the technology is developing. I'm sitting here at my cottage in uh, Ontario. I have solar panels over my head here. Uh, I don't need solar panels. I have, uh, you know, I'm on the grid. But, but uh, I installed them 17 years ago because I was just fascinated. Like, what's it like to have them? Do they work? Can you get power? They, you know, are they, they reliable? So there's this whole discussion of you know we have to stop this and just use uh, simply use renewables. If it was that simple, we'd be done by now. There would be no discussion. But unfortunately, it they're not interchangeable. You know, the renewables, uh, uh, especially solar and wind, of course, are, are intermittent, and we need reliable uh, base load power. So that has to be nuclear, uh, hydro uh natural gas and so we will be and ontario is a a great example aaron because uh ontario of course has very substantial nuclear reactors with uh bruce pickering and and darlington darlington being the the newest uh but pickering is uh scheduled for retirement starting in two years and that's a big gap to fill you know it's 500 megawatts per reactor Uh, i think seven of the eight are are currently operating so that's thirty-five hundred megawatts Uh, of, of reliable 24 hours a, a day, 365 days a year power. Uh, I, you know, Just recently, I saw a discussion about possibly spending billions to extend that because it is so difficult to re- replace. And the only alternative today that Ontario has to replace that power is natural gas. So mm-hmm. is Ontario gonna start taking a step backwards here in terms of uh, emissions from generating electricity? It's gonna be a very interesting debate in Ontario. How much are people willing to pay uh, for their electricity? And uh, to what lengths is uh, Ontario willing to go here to extend the life of these reactors or do they switch to natural gas? Because, uh, I, you know, I hope Ontario does continue to develop renewables as well, but it's not going to replace Pickering or Bruce or Darlington, especially Darlington. Those are big reactors.
1: Yeah, no, and we can be very proud that uh, that um, the, the Greenhouse gas emission-free power from nuclear is over 50% in Canada from the Bruce, from Pickering, from Darlington. I've actually appeared at the regulatory hearings extending Pickering uh, uh, till 2024, 2025. And recently the Ontario government wants to extend safely even further. And the regulatory commission will 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 look at that. But if you remove that, um, yes, we we then fall into a trap of potential energy scarcity as particularly Southern Ontario continues to grow with most of our net immigration. Uh, not all of it, but a good portion, a majority of it coming to Southern Ontario. And just the need to make smart, long-term policy decisions uh, absent of virtue signaling in politics. In fact, it goes back to, I, I believe, Bob Ray, maybe David Peterson, cancelling an intertie with Manitoba, the Conawapa hydro project. Uh, they said, oh, Ontario has more than enough power. We yeah. don't need to take this hydro from Manitoba because the transmission construction would have been expensive. Well, not only did that lead to brownouts in the late uh, 1990s, two governments later, that transmission would have run through northern Ontario in the area now called the Ring of Fire. So we yeah. would have actually had transmission to to uh, to develop some of the rare earth uh, uh, and critical mineral strategies that were now behind. So much like Germany... When you make political decisions, doubling down on gas from Russia, phasing out nuclear, Japan made similar decisions. You're actually hurting yourself in the in the long term. And renewables are key, but as you said in your presentation, um, in the increase of kind of zero to nine million uh, barrels uh, barrels of oil equivalent over a decade of renewables, uh, it was a factor of seven times more generation came. From oil, gas, and coal. So while renewables rise, the overall energy demand is rising even faster.
0: Well, you know, absolutely, for the reasons we talked about before, uh, people living in poverty, uh, and you know, we have made uh, progress in that. There's fewer people living in uh, uh, you know uh, food poverty today than at any time in previous history. So we, we have, as a percentage of the population. So we we have made uh, progress, but when it comes to uh, energy abundance, we have uh, a heck of a long way to go. And, uh, you know, maybe just to touch on another comment you made at the beginning in your opening comments there, and you you know, you said that Canada, you know, uh, there's fear of recession globally, and Canada's well-positioned with our natural resources. Uh, And, you know, I would say that goes well beyond energy. Canada is so blessed with all natural resources, whether we're talking mining, agriculture, uh, energy, hydro, you name it. And so I don't understand. And here we are at a time, as you say, massive deficits. Not only can we help people globally with energy and food and uh, raw materials that the world desperately needs, We can get this country going like it's never been going before, and we can do it very quickly with our natural resources, all of our natural resources. So why we continue to fight over what we can't do, what we cannot do, I don't understand why uh, all parties don't switch the discussion, uh, and I I would give you credit for doing this, uh, switch the discussion to what we can do, because we can do a lot. And, you know, people say, well, we shouldn't be developing natural resources. We'll be, you know, uh, drawers of water and hewers of wood. it's not mutually exclusive. That doesn't mean we don't also develop a tech sector and automotive sector and others. It's not mutually exclusive. We can do all these things, but we have to have a will to do things, to, to move forward. And and we're so well positioned in so many natural resources. And we sit here and in fights and, and, fight and uh, legal challenges and, and, uh, and, and do nothing.
1: No, absolutely. And we have to look at who our competitors are. We talked about that uh, a little bit off the top and you talk about it in your presentation the only two democracies with real private sector uh, production in, in oil and gas and and really in, in minerals and other things are Canada and the United States. You look at the other players, you're looking at Russia, you're looking at Saudi Arabia, Qatar, China, depending on whether it's yeah. oil or gas. So if Canada says it's meeting its uh, emission targets and reductions, if Canada says that we're having high labor standards, we're having indigenous par- uh, partnerships, you can trust that our regulatory system, both provincially and federally, uh, will actually show what is being done. And we have big players like Suncor committing to plans for net zero by 2050 and, and bringing innovation. If if Saudi Arabia announces that, or Russia announces, <laughs> or China announces it, you can't even take uh, on face value what they say their emissions are by industry. Uh, I've said with China they were viol- caught violating the Montreal Protocol, which was to stop uh, uh, chloral, fluorocarbon CFCs to, for the ozone hole. They will sign things and say things that you can't trust. The more we take our energy or our resources out of the equation, the more we're allowing bad actors to fill that gap. So is there not a role for us globally as ESG leader? providing that energy abundance for the developing world and doing it in a way that gets emissions down and, and human rights standards up?
0: You know, there's, a, a as you know, a very strong movement uh, in Canada and North America to disinvest in oil and gas. And, and you know, you see us universities jumping on board and charitable endowments and pension funds. And we're not going to invest in oil and gas. There's pressure on the banks not, not to lend to oil and gas. Uh, there's uh, pressure on insurance companies not to uh, insure uh, oil and gas projects. Uh, and of course, all these people are are, are trying to uh, cripple the energy industry here in North America and particularly in Canada. And, you know, as I said earlier, one thing I share with these uh, groups is uh, the desire to reduce emissions. I'm I'm in total agreement with them. We have to reduce emissions. But, you know, I ask these people when I have a chance to speak to them, you know, uh, let's say you're successful. You shut down the energy industry here in Canada. We have... Uh, all our oil and gas companies shut down. We produce no more oil and gas. So what happens? Well, now we and the rest of the world have to get our energy from all these other countries that you mentioned. And I'll include the United States in this. I'm a big fan of the United States. I'm not criticizing, but I'll include them. So if we do that, now we're getting our energy from, uh, you know, the Middle East, Russia, the United States. You know, which one of those countries, you know, has higher human rights standards than us? Uh, which one has higher uh, gender equality standards? Which one has higher indigenous participation standards? Which one has higher religious freedoms? You know, which one has higher environmental standards in Canada? So although I share the uh, objective with these uh, some of these groups who are putting pressure on our financial institutions. You know, I know they're, they're virtue signaling and they feel, you know, we're good. These companies are bad, so we're going to beat up on them. Uh, but they're actually w- working against their goal. You know, if they're successful, we're actually going to increase emissions, not decrease emissions. So it, it's become such a polarized argument, us versus them. We've forgotten what the issue is. The issue is to reduce emissions. So let's focus on reducing emissions, not on uh, vilifying people and misinforming and uh, virtue signaling, which is actually working against the the goal that we're all trying to achieve.
1: Yeah, I, I used to call the that sort of activist approach trying to uh, be activists and force banks to divest or pension funds or endowments. Uh, I used to call it well-intentioned stupidity. When, when I became a leader, I tried to tone it down and called it well-intentioned naivety. But it really is because that consumption will happen. So indirectly, that movement, pressuring Chancellor Merkel's government, for example, produced what we have today: the yeah. the green in their proportional represent a representative democracy uh, extracted a promise to kill nuclear. That then amplified the risk of having no diversification away from Russian gas. And the result, a decade later, is energy scarcity in one of the wealthiest countries in the world, Germany, now having to rely on high emission coal electricity generation for their world-class industrial sector. It kind of shows the well-intentioned uh <laughs> approach of these activists lead to to bad results. It's much like um you know, the the young activists that can sail to meetings in, in New York with a with a boat that has followed the science on, on the sail, uh also being anti-nuclear and and not having realistic approaches for for modern energy uh policy. The other thing I liked in your presentation was you talked a bit about the, the the Jevons paradox, which is as countries become more efficient, more innovative, they're also consuming more energy. So we do have the ability to get emissions down. I'm I'm quite sure most of the major projects in Canada have a lower emission threshold today than they did 10 years ago. But energy demand has gone up at the same time. Talk about that for a moment.
0: Well, the, the Jevons paradox was uh, first uh, was written by a British economist, William Stanley uh, Jevons, and he said it. I think it was 1865, and he was writing about the use of coal in the British Industrial Revolution. And he wrote that uh, as technology improves to increase efficiency, we actually use more energy, not less. And uh, and that's still true today. And you know, I can give uh, some examples. Uh, you know, uh, lighting. We used to have incandescent bulbs. You know, we'd put up a string of Christmas lights uh, outside the house in the the winter. And I remember doing that, putting up on the east trough. You know, you clip them in and get in the Christmas spirit. And then we came up with LED lighting. You know, how fantastic is that? You know, one-tenth the electricity consumption of incandescent Christmas lights. Now we put up strings everywhere, you know, and you go (laughs) by houses. They're all lit up like crazy. Our homes, we put more lights in. Uh, You know, uh, gasoline. Gasoline keeps getting more and more expensive uh our cars get more and more efficient we go further on a gallon of gas they're safer we can go more places roads have improved we can we can get to more places we can get there faster we can get there safer and we keep using more and more gasoline because we can do all these things so uh you know i can give many examples but uh it, it's uh, it's very you know you know he uh wrote that 160 years ago but it's still true today uh it, we, you know, we're Canadians are no different than other people on Earth. We want to live a high quality of life. So as we get more efficient with energy and it's more affordable and we have more of it, we tend to use more and more energy. And of course, the rest of the world is still trying to keep catch up to us, not just Canada, Australia, New Zealand, United States. Uh, and, you know, you talked about the energy situation in Europe right now. And uh, it's, uh, you know, maybe a bit of a sad comment on human nature, because we've talked about this issue for many years, you know, energy reliability and and sustainability of of supply and so on, security of supply. Unfortunately, it took a horrific, horrific uh, event, uh, the war in the Ukraine, to bring the issue to reality, to be able to have a calm discussion on it, because up until earlier this year, if you try to raise these things, you know, you're instantly labeled, a, you know, a climate change denier and a, and a dinosaur and whatever else other terms you want to use. Uh, but all of a sudden it's very real. And, you know, that is a very, very high price to pay. It's an insanely high price to pay to be able to have a, uh, a, a reasonable discussion on energy, but it, it has brought it to reality. And so, you know, I, I hope that war ends, uh, today, but, uh, uh Uh, it's really brought the issue to reality.
1: Yeah, we all hope the war ends today um, or very soon. It's been uh, great to see Ukrainian gains and regaining some of their territory recently, but some of the missile strikes in in Kiev and and, uh, many of the Ukrainian cities in response to the destruction of the bridge to Crimea has Putin uh, rattling his saber again. But going to that energy piece for Europe, the UK... Uh, recently ran into a bit of a uh, financial crisis with the new trust government's tax cut. But it was because it came on the heels of the government capping household energy bills. So all of the European governments, or many of them, will be subsidizing or capping, uh, so directly intervening in the marketplace to keep household bills down. And it goes back to your presentation as well, where 80% of our emissions – our household-related choice—the—the uh, the, you know the burning of of, uh, of home heating oil or whatever source to heat your home, to power your home, to drive your car—these are real decisions. And I think now some of the the activists uh, are realizing that uh, it's easier to debate some of these policies uh, when times are good and when there isn't a threat to to our energy security. But it's it's much harder to make the argument when people see their the reality of what's happening in Europe, we're gonna we're gonna see pressures on global prices around the world.
0: Well, you know it's true. Uh, there's so much pressure on the energy industry to reduce emissions, and uh, and it has to. I, you know, there's no way that the energy industry should get a free pass, or you know, uh, and the energy industry has to reduce emissions. But eighty percent of the emissions from oil and natural gas uh, is you and me. You know, when we drive our car, when we go on our holidays, when we heat our home and cook our meals and whatever else we do and so that's when it becomes really really difficult you know I, and i tell people it's really e- easy to call yourself an environmentalist when you're telling other people what to do you should drive less you should travel less you should live in a it's really really hard when you look at what you have to do personally and you know as i said before, a number of times already i fully support many of these environmental groups and individuals who are trying to reduce greenhouse gases uh, it's an important goal. Uh, however, they're not reducing theirs. They're flying all over the place, you know, giving talks and, and raising funds and whatever else. And, and so they're not reducing their emissions. They're telling you, you have to reduce your emissions. That's really easy. And, and you know, I, I'm as guilty as anybody else, by the way. I'm not pointing fingers here. I, uh, you know, I live in the West. I have my cottage here in Ontario. I got back from Spain cycling last week, you know, I I'm guilty, you know. And how many of us have had this discussion around the kitchen table with our kids? Yeah.
1: Yeah. You know, we're all we're, we're all guilty. Um yeah. I, I I like to ask the the in the last campaign, uh, the media didn't have to ask which campaign had the lowest uh, uh GHG footprint. Um we did. We bought offsets uh, for our, our plane and we had uh local market buses. We didn't uh ferry buses across the country, because it had a, a picture of me wrapped on the side. So you have four buses, and you're forwarding them, driving them yeah, all the way yeah. to the Maritimes. We rented local buses, we would have had um, probably the lowest footprint um, of a major national campaign, but it, it made some hard choices. And we dedicated some of our funds to the offsets. Um, but we all have a role to play. Let, let me go to the last part of our conversation, Chris, because I was really struck by your final segment on challenging Canada, do we have the courage to build that same philosophy that built our country? You showed the last spike, uh, building a railway to the Pacific. You showed the Trans Canada Pipeline, and at that time it was a Liberal government foisting a national yeah. pipeline, and the, and the crisis that uh, that led to that. The bridge, uh, the Confederation Bridge to, to Prince Edward Island. You know we were a country that that really had an ambition to connect all parts to to be world leaders to build things and to dream of great things and i really think we're we're now tripping over bureaucracy regulation of course bill c69 which has been in in force for many years we still refer to it as a bill because it was a collection of regulations that essentially made any large project, any large hydro dam, uh, uh, generating station, pipeline, almost impossible to, to build because of the uncertainty for the capital investment. Talk a little bit about that and how Canada really is being held back by lacking that courage and putting up barriers to progress.
0: Well, you know, every single... Canadian benefits from the projects that you mentioned and and many others, you know, James Bay in Quebec and uh, the hydro dams in BC and Darlington, Pickering, Bruce uh, in Ontario. And today, once you have all these things, and this is why I call it energy arrogance, now that we have all these things, people say, okay, shut everything down, we're not that anymore. Well... Uh, you know, it doesn't work like that. We have to keep going. We have to keep building. There, there's more Canadians. There's more demand for na- natural resources. Uh, we, we have to keep building for our benefit and, of course, for the benefit of the world. And it's not all altruistic. You know, Canada benefits greatly when we export uh, our natural resources. And uh, uh, it, so I I think uh, I, I grew up in the 60s, you know, in, in the, the era of the, the Kennedy era. And, you know, in 1961, Kennedy gave his famous speech about, before this decade is out, we're going to put a man on the moon and bring him home safely. And eight years, two months later, Neil Armstrong stepped on the moon. You know, incredible feat. You know, uh, I have more computing power on my iPhone today than Nassau had at that time, and they put a man on the moon, two men on the moon, and brought him home safely. Absolutely incredible, and of course, you know there they, there was no book that they could go to say, you know, here's how you put a man on the moon. They had to invent everything, design it, build it, test it. You know, fast forward to Canada today, um, you know, the uh, LNG project in uh, Kitimat that's being built now was first proposed, I think, 2010. It took almost eight years just to approve it. Now we didn't we didn't invent LNG; it's being made all over the world. We improved it. The uh, Kitimat project is the lowest emissions LNG project on Earth. And, uh, but it took us eight years just to say, hey, good idea. You know, what happened? How did we get involved in such a quagmire? And, you know, just picture yourself on a Canadian trade mission, anywhere in the world. You're going to uh, Europe trying to get investment into Canada. And you tell the people there, look, I've got a great proposition for you. You can invest somewhere else in the world. In the next eight years, you can put men on Mars, or you can come to Canada and invest in Canada, and in the next eight years, stuck in an unclear regulatory quagmire, come on down. No wonder capital is escaping this country. You know, we, we have to start, get get our courage and our mojo back, and we have to start building, and we have to do it with the highest environmental standards in the world with full indigenous consultation and participation and get going let's get our mojo back let's get our courage back and start building this country you know we we can do it we've done it before we can do this
1: i love it more mojo less in action <laughs> so let's take all the politics out of it these eight-year delays these uh virtue signaling policies and and bills like 69 that basically screech investment to a halt if today we wanted to be that global esgi leader taking the incredible resources we have building those indigenous partnerships having a increasingly lower emission economy in in hydrocarbons in in all forms of energy um, we're in the top six for oil gas and nuclear generation, we're one of the largest uh, countries with a, a uh, with uranium deposits. If we were to try to help global energy demand in in Asia Pacific and Europe, what would we do? We would have LNG on our our coasts, Kitimat, and whether the Saguenay, Goldboro, or or Saint John in in the east. But to do that we'd need pipelines and we'd need a faster process of getting it uh, getting it approved. Sketch out to me what you think we should do if we really wanted to be the global energy ESG leader.
0: Uh, I, I look at it in uh, uh, two categories. One is the, the technologies we already have today. And so that's LNG uh, low emission production of LNG, because we have so much uh, hydro, uh, we can do that. So we can be leaders in LNG, we can be leaders in uh, nuclear. Uh, we were at one point, we should be again, including small modular reactors. There is no way, no way we can get to a uh, low emissions planet without nuclear energy. It's just too important, too large, too reliable of an energy source to ignore. And I know many of the environmental groups are against it, but again, Uh, I think they're fighting against their objective of reducing emissions. There's just no way. Uh, Obviously, renewables, uh, which includes uh, wind and solar. It also includes geothermal. There's a few areas in Canada where we have geothermal potential, but uh, for the most part, geothermal is not going to be a huge player in Canada. And, of course, things like carbon capture and storage. Again, there's a lot of opposition to it. from environmental groups but uh we are going to be consuming oil and gas for decades and decades to come you know i hope to live for a a very long time but i know when i pass away oil and natural gas will be the biggest source of energy on this planet so let's start uh uh, developing uh carbon capture projects and of course it it is beginning it's in its infancy so that's one bucket uh, is the known technologies the other one is the Uh, new technologies we require. So that's things like uh, direct air capture, uh, hydrogen, uh, nuclear fusion, uh, small modular reactors, I mentioned. Uh, And, you know, again, there's debate whether those things should be pursued. We don't have the luxury of debating all these things. We need to pursue all of them because some of them won't work. And I don't know which ones. So we need to pursue many avenues and uh, and see which technologies work if we, we truly plan to reduce emissions materially by 2050. 2050 is not that far away. So, you know, that's the E element, uh, I think, of uh, ESG. But, uh, you know, I think a big part of it in Canada is also the uh, Indigenous population who, uh, until very recently you know until the mid 90s they weren't even consulted probably you know and then it started with consulting and then it went to FPIC, free prior and informed consent and then very recently it went to direct participation and there's many examples uh, not only in the energy industry but i think uh you know if we really want to get indigenous canadians out of the cycle of poverty that we've put them in uh, that is the solution not just uh ownership but uh working and managing these projects not just equity ownership but actually uh providing the skills and management to run these projects uh you know that's been done in alaska very successfully it took a number of decades to get it all uh, you know and there was many failures along the way and we will have them too but we if we don't do anything 50 years from now we're going to be exactly where we are uh today so uh, you know I, I think when it comes to esg canada can be uh, a leader in a number of ways we have the Many technologies already, and there's other technologies uh, that we need to develop, and we need to start now.
1: We need to get our mojo back. Exactly. Yeah. No. (laughs) uh, (laughs) They're your words. Listen, uh, Chris. Thank you so much for for discussing energy and and opportunity and the potential for Canadian leadership on the Blue Skies Political Podcast. We've not been uh, partisan today. We try and just have a longer form engaged discussion on an important topic and today you've helped bring that showing that we can be optimistic about the use of renewables getting emissions down climate change is is a critical challenge facing canada and the world but we also have to come up with policies that that live in the real world and help canadians benefit from this race to provide 75% 75% more electricity generation for the world in the next 30 years. These are real challenges and provide real opportunities. So thanks for sharing a little bit of your thoughts on the Blue Skies podcast today.
0: My pleasure. Thank you for having me.
1: And I'd like to invite everyone to, to check out uh, Chris's TED Talk from 2019, you can find it on the the TEDx, it was hosted in Grand Prairie, Canadian Energy Leadership, where Chris discusses many of the issues related to energy scarcity, abundance, renewables, what we could do in terms of becoming a major energy leader. And this is something I'm going to focus some considerable time to because I think Canada has the ability To present to the United States, our integrated security and trade partner, the ability for a fortress North America approach to energy from traditional forms of, of oil and gas and hydrocarbons through connections to our electricity grid on a North American basis to allow more hydro to get into the United States, nuclear, other lower emission sources, more development of uranium, the very fact that Uranium supplies in Russia should not be relied upon at all. Canada, having provided uranium to the United States back to World War II, we also have the ability to lead on battery development and critical minerals in part of that. In fact, Ontario's heritage in in prospecting, developing, mining shows that we have produced and can produce some of these resources on scale projects and allow North American auto industry to become EV or zero emission vehicle leaders. So there's there's an opportunity for Canada to really set the stage and to make sure that energy, whether it's consumed in the developing Southern Hemisphere or the developed Northern Hemisphere, is environmentally conscious, socially aware, governed in principles of the highest standards and in partnership with First Nations. We have an ability to thrive if we get our mojo back, if, as Chris said, we have the courage to build. So thank you, Chris Sublicki, for coming on Blue Skies Political Podcast. Thank you for tuning in. Let me know your thoughts on this important topic of energy. If you have a topic you think we should be covering, send us a direct message. Thank you again for tuning in to the Blue Skies Political Podcast. I'm Aaron O'Toole, the Member of Parliament for Durham. Be well.